Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Edward Ballison, who is the author of Fraud and American History from Barnum to Madoff. The book is published by Princeton University Press, and I have the author on the phone right now. Ed, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Heath. Thanks so much for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Such an interesting book uh, of history and of politics and of, of, of business and economics. Before we get to it, uh, would you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Oh, I'm a historian uh, of uh, 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 policy, law, business here at Duke University, uh, and I, I'm also now serving as vice provost for interdisciplinary studies at Duke. Yeah, it's, your your varied background shows up in in this really interesting book that's about so many things, uh, so many things that just feel like they're increasingly important in the world today. But this is really also a book about history, and I wonder if we could just get started by getting uh, a term on the table. Um, And it's a term with so many colorful variants. Uh, It's one of the fun parts of the book is is seeing uh, how the the term is used. So uh, would you tell us what what is fraud and what are some of these different ways that frauds and those who commit fraud are referred to in the book, particularly in that older time period? So I think we have to make a really important distinction between fraud as a term in everyday speech, uh, whether in the early 19th century or the early 21st, on the one hand, and fraud as a specific legal term. The first usage of fraud, I would suggest, means basically uh, it's a claim that, that you've been harmed in some way through deception involving some kind of economic transaction uh, and, you know, that you've been ripped off, basically. Um, the legal term is much more specific. It involves a whole series of uh, evidentiary thresholds, including uh, that the person making some type of claim knows that the claim is false, uh, that the individual who hears the claim believes it and relies upon it uh, and has not engaged and, uh, and has engaged rather in appropriate due diligence. So, so the, these are two very different and in, uh, important uses of that, that key term for me in the book, fraud. Uh, and we have to keep them uh, separate, even though they, they influence each other. So as popular understandings of deceit change that can filter through into policy reforms uh, and the implementation of whatever law may be on the books. Since in the United States, we rely on a lot of discretion on the part of uh, regulators and, and law enforcers. Uh, and because we also rely in criminal and civil cases on juries, the issues about popular belief filter through to the actual workings of the legal system. Now, you argue at the start of the book that the entrepreneurial spirit of the United States, since its founding, 
has been in constant tension with fraud. Um, how so exactly? What is particularly American about flimflammery is, is one of the ways that you refer to it in the book. So what is American about this? Well, deception happens in every modern capitalist economy because every economy is predicated on trust and involves uh, huge flows of information uh, that is impossible for anyone to check in their entirety. Uh, so there, there's nothing particularly American about the incidence of business fraud. Uh, on the other hand, the United States has a distinctive openness to uh, entrepreneurial innovation, and that includes uh, uh, an openness to promotional hype. So distinguishing what looks like just uh, promotional puffery from outright deception, what we would call flimflammery, where, where, where does uh, really, really vigorous exaggeration cross over the line into something that we would think about as uh, contemptible or even illegal deceit, that, that's maybe tougher to uh, parse in the United States. And then the other key element here to keep in mind is that American uh, culture, important strands of it, have always emphasized the importance of self-reliance, the capacity for individuals to make themselves into something, but also to look out for themselves. And, and so there, there has often been in the United States a skepticism about those who get taken in, uh, that maybe they deserved it and that they need to learn their lesson in order to uh, navigate the hurly-burly world of the American economy. Now, there are counterpoints to that. I, we, we shouldn't ignore the counterpoints, but, but both the embrace of um, entrepreneurial opportunity and the focus on self-reliance have created opportunities for uh, deceitful business operators uh, to take advantage of. Now, towards the start of the book, you describe uh, what you describe, describe as the four domains of swindles in the 19th century. I wonder if you could tell us about these four domains briefly. Well, so um, there, there are others besides these four, but I, I, I pick, I think, the most important ones to, uh, to underscore. So a, a few of them involve uh, investment frauds. There's, uh, there's the classic pump and dump investments in fraud, which involves creating a buzz around some, some asset class or a specific company or, or, or business opportunity uh, and driving up public interest in it and therefore the value in that asset and then unloading it onto the public. Um, so that's one one classic. And these are not just in the 19th century. These are these are really throughout modern history. They're not just in the United States, but elsewhere as well. Uh, another classic investment fraud is the pyramid scheme, uh, what we refer to as the now mostly as the Ponzi scheme after Charles Ponzi and his pyramid scheme in Boston in 1920. Uh, and here you have uh, uh, the promise of some fabulous return on an asset, often uh, 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 one that is not actually immediately in the public eye, uh, but the, the capacity to make good on the initial promise of fabulous returns in a fairly short time frame uh, because there are new investors attracted uh, to, the, to the scheme. And so the, 
the schemester, the, the scammer just takes the uh, uh, investments of, of new investors to pay off on the claims made to older investors. And this is a pyramid scheme because it requires ever larger numbers of investors to make good on the claims uh, that have been offered. And so it almost always, well, it does always collapse under its own weight. Uh, the third example uh, type of fraud that I emphasize is, is the basic structure of consumer fraud, which in almost every instance, instance uh, involves some version of the bait and switch. So you make some, some type of promise about a good or service uh, to get a customer in the, the, across the threshold of, of the, the store or onto a website in the online age. Uh, and, and then you, you provide something, here's the switch, which is different, either a good or service of much lesser quality uh, or according to different credit terms uh, than promised perhaps orally in the written sales contract. And so then the, the deception involves the, the difference between the bait and the switch. And then the final example, which in almost in most cases is the most uh, socially corrosive and costly type of fraud, uh, sociologists refer to it as control fraud. And this involves managers of companies taking advantage of their inside position, essentially to loot the assets of the company, either through self-dealing or through uh, manipulation of uh, of stock or bond prices, um, or uh, or padding through various mechanisms their own compensation. Uh, so so this managerial fraud is a is a fourth type. Now the the, the frauds that you described are, are are committed by those with ill in, uh, ill intent and to a certain extent to a great extent, um, but their success. It seems to me you argue is is also related to the rather weak legal arrangements and laissez-faire attitudes towards business, uh, particularly in the 19th century. Uh, how did the courts approach fraud during this time period? Well, there there always uh, in the United States have been legal uh, 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 constraints on on uh, deceptive behavior, but the the operation of the legal system, the nature of law in action, meant that it was often very difficult to make a claim stick, uh, either through civil process or even more so through uh, criminal process. Uh, let's take the latter example as a case in point. Uh, so there were common law prohibitions against, uh, criminal prohibitions against uh, deceitful economic practice, and a great many uh, statutory extensions of those common law uh, restrictions through, for example, false pretenses statutes. Uh, but it was really difficult to make a claim stick. You had to meet all of these evidentiary thresholds that I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion. And in many instances, the costs associated with any given uh, 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 fraudulent action weren't necessarily uh, worth it to an individual to pursue a legal case, even a, a criminal case, because also in the 19th century, uh, particularly the first part, first uh, number of decades, number of decades of the 19th century, uh, individual complainants often had to bring uh, even criminal actions. Then there's the point about self-reliance that I mentioned before. A great many individuals uh, did not want to admit publicly that they had been defrauded because it would suggest they were 
unable uh, to spot the fraud in advance. Uh, and then, and then finally, there were jurisdictional uh, problems, particularly in transactions that occurred across state lines. So in, in those circumstances, especially once mail order commerce became uh, uh, significant in, in the second half of the 19th century, uh, amassing the evidence to make a case uh, against someone who lived in a completely different jurisdiction and who was conducting business through the mail was, was really uh, quite a daunting prospect. Now, the, the courts were, were um, not always providing a bulwark against this, but you have this intriguing uh, description about uh, the ways in which these kinds of business activity threatened other businesses, that they were undermining general trust in, in the business sector. Um, the business community then seeks to self-regulate in the 1920s and 30s in certain ways, and they do so in the form of better business bureaus, partially. How did the better business bureaus get started, and what did they exactly do? So the, the, the better business bureaus was, were initially, and, and this is still largely true today, uh, a, a, a metropolitan phenomenon. They occurred in big cities. Um, and they uh, emerged at the behest of a coalition within the business community, uh, driven by representatives of the more reputable advertising agencies, a number of leaders of large-scale retailers, uh, some representatives of the investment banking community, uh, and, and then also, uh, in some cases, representatives of large-scale manufacturers of branded concerns. Uh, these were all individuals that were worried about the prevalence of, of deception in the marketplace, uh, worried increasingly about its macroeconomic costs, the way in which it was undermining uh, these individuals' thought, general confidence in advertising and in the growth of a consumer economy. Uh, and so they created these uh, self-regulatory entities, better business bureaus, uh, starting in the Midwest. The first one is in Minneapolis and uh, emerges in Minneapolis in 1912, spreading to most major cities by uh, the early 1920s. And uh, these organizations had uh, all of the core functions that we now think of with respect to comp uh, complex regulatory institutions. They uh, monitored the marketplace. They engaged in massive campaigns of public education, uh, not just general principles of how consumers and investors could look out for themselves, uh, but also warnings about specific scams and, and, and specific uh, uh, deceitful businesses operating in, in uh, their communities. Uh, they not only uh, uh, monitored ads, they sent out mis what we would call now mystery shoppers, uh, to uh, examine the sales practices of businesses in a given community. Uh, they would engage with those with businesses whom they thought were uh, in, uh, 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 cheating customers or otherwise being deceitful and ask them to reform their practices. Uh, but they also were not entirely distinct from the state. Uh, Better Business Bureaus lobbied for the passage of uh, false advertising statutes, and this would then th those statutes then became the kind of a kind of club that they could use with businesses who they felt were not living up to appropriate marketing standards, and they could threaten those businesses with referrals to state authorities. Um, there were many more threats than there were actual referrals. In the 1920s, 
a better business bureaus, particularly in, in large cities like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, also took on a function of policing the uh, financial markets, especially the uh, uh, over-the-counter markets that, that where there were trades happening outside uh, uh, the established exchanges, um, uh, so also curb markets. And, uh, and so they would uh, try and warn the public about uh, unscrupulous promoters who were, who were bringing uh, fraudulent investments uh, into the nation's marketplaces. Now, in, in Chapter 9 of the book, uh, you write about the emerging anti-fraud infrastructure that comes out of the New Deal. And, and you describe the case of the sales practices of the Holland Furnace Company. Uh, would you recount that case a bit and, and how it pushed the new Federal Trade Commission to, the, to its limits of enforcement? So this is, you, you can look at the case of the Holland Furnace Company in, in a couple of different ways. So one, one way to look at it is uh, as an indication of the creakiness of, of the regulatory state. Uh, and yet, I think from the vantage point of the early 21st century, you can also see in this case uh, an example of, a, of, of what a vigorous uh, uh, anti uh, uh, network of anti-fraud institutions can accomplish. So Holland Furnace... Um, as the name suggests, made uh, heating systems for, uh, particularly for residential uh, uh, homes. And uh, it had not only and not only sold furnaces, it, it serviced them. Uh, and by the 1930s, it had developed a, a fairly abusive business practice involving with the inspection of, of home furnaces. So Holland would send its sales staff out uh, to door uh, to go door by door, uh, and uh, would ask. Often, the sales staff would pretend to be uh, government inspectors or or some type of inspector not affiliated with the company, and they would ask to see the furnace. Uh, if allowed to, they would disassemble it, and then they would explain uh, to the homeowner that they could not put it back together again because they had discovered that it was in fact dangerous. Some of Holland Furnace's uh, uh, advertising from the mid-20th century would even show houses on fire uh, as a, a, an indication of the dangers of having a, an unsafe furnace. And so then uh, the, the sales staff, the salesperson would, would explain that they would be more than happy to uh, sell a brand new furnace from Holland, uh, but they, they couldn't possibly repair the old one uh, nor reassemble it because they would then be party to a potentially dangerous uh, uh, outcome. Now, complaints about Holland Furnace's practices uh, uh, rolled into the Federal Trade Commission and other government agencies literally for decades. Uh, and the Federal Trade Commission engaged in a couple of different cease and desist orders against the company uh, without really having any impact on it. Uh, until the uh, uh, mid-1960s, when in the aftermath of yet another uh, ignored cease and desist order, uh, there were criminal charges brought against the firm's uh, top leadership, including its president. And at that point, uh, it's only at that point that, you, uh, that the, the company eventually uh, uh, really moved away from the, the way that it's standing up, standard operating procedure uh, in dealing with, with consumers. So on the one hand, this suggested just how long it could take 
for really vigorous anti-fraud action to emerge in the American uh, uh, regulatory domain. And yet, eventually, Holland Furnace, at least this part of its operations, were really were really stopped. Uh, you know, and so so the the conclusion that I would draw, especially in light of the explosion of major uh, scandals and episodes of business fraud since the late 1970s in the United States, uh, is that for all its limitations, the mid 20th century state did uh, anti fraud state did did circumscribe and contain uh, the the uh, uh, scale and scope of business fraud. Now, this is a sort of a a uh, big book of, of history that goes far, uh, far back in U.S. history, but you take us up somewhat to sort of where we are now, and not to ask you to summarize sort of the, the whole landscape uh, of, of fraud and, and these issues today, but, but where are we today? Are, are we in a period where um, the Madoffs and Ponzi's and the, the Barnums of the world uh, remain... Um, Active and, and unfettered in, in their ability to uh, fraud consumers, or, or uh, have things shifted. Uh, what's your sense of the current state of affairs? Well, since the 1970s, the United States has gone through several decades of uh, significant deregulation. There have been counterpoints to that, and I, I'll talk about those in a minute. But uh, most regulatory agencies, especially at the federal level, have uh, gone through periods of, of significant budgetary constraint. This was especially the case uh, in the 1980s and then again in the 2000s, but, in, uh, but also to some extent in the 1990s uh, with conservatives in control of Congress. Um, and e- equally important, perhaps even more important, uh, many of the leaders put in charge of regulatory agencies uh, came to view the policy trade-off between uh, uh, being concerned about uh, the problem of fraud on the one hand and wanting to uh, encourage economic growth and innovation on the other, uh, they began to to shift the the balance there toward the latter set of goals uh, subsequent to the 1970s. Uh, And I think that has been a, a powerful uh, contributor to the increase in the scale and scope of fraud and also the, the growing incidence of deception uh, uh, and deceit, not just within fly-by-night firms or actually quite uh, smaller, maybe medium-sized firms like Holland Furnace Company, but actually some of the largest companies uh, in the economy like Enron in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, or Sunbeam or WorldCom, where you have multi-billion-dollar fraud scandals. Um, where are we now? Well, there have been some counterpoints, as I as I mentioned. It's it's not the case that governments have uh, just been completely asleep at the wheel. There's been a real focus on the problem of uh, consumer fraud targeting the elderly, uh, and so a whole series of uh, of campaigns and uh, uh, coordinated enforcement operations across a number of different uh, agencies at both the uh, federal and state and also the local level. Um, uh, you know, and then we came, I think, to the an inter- what seemed like potentially a, a, an inflection point with the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, which was not 
trivially shaped in part by uh, really quite substantial misrepresentations in the mortgage markets uh, with the emergence at the at the uh, uh, level of uh, of actually distributing mortgages to homeowners of uh, the emergence of things like liars loans, uh, but also uh, lack of transparency in the bond rating uh, of mortgage backed securities and other derivatives linked to the mortgage market, uh, uh, lack of candor in the appraisal of, of mortgages uh, and in the marketing of, of derivatives as well. Um, and, and so in those with respect to that, deregulation operated as much through the refusal to develop new kinds of regulatory rules as it did in the shaping of enforcement priorities. With the, with the dramatic consequences of the financial, global financial crisis of 2008, uh, there were obviously uh, a number of steps taken, uh, as was the case actually after the corporate accounting scandals of the late 1990s, uh, to tighten up regulatory oversight of commercial speech, uh, and, and I think the most, one of the, one of the uh, most important developments there uh, has been the emergence of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, yet, even in 2010, even as the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is coming into uh, into existence through the Dodd Frank Act. Uh, Congress was also hearkening back in some ways to uh, the 19th century, trying to loosen up financial regulation with the Jobs Act, uh, which sought to reduce disclosure burdens on uh, on new firms trying to raise capital. So it's not clear exactly where we are. And of course, with the with the with the Trump administration, there are all kinds of signals of an intent to uh, loosen regulatory. Uh, curbs on business of all kinds, uh, including in the area of marketing. We shall see. Uh, until until then, uh, the book, Fraud and American History, From Barnum to Madoff, is published by Princeton University Press. Edward Ballison is the author. You've been hearing from him uh, just now. Ed, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Heath, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. <laughs>